All right, guys, let's just get started. Welcome, Vince. Hey, um, let me pray for us and then we'll get going. Father, we are thankful that we uh, get to do these classes. It's not a common thing here in the city. And it is indeed, Lord God, um, a privilege for us to be able to do this, to think wisely about who you are, to think wisely about God and who you are before the foundations of the world, who you were um, before anything even began, Lord God. Um, Lord, I, I, I pray that you be present with us here today, that you would help us fix our attentions on you, that you would dispel all doubting, that you would dispel our anxieties, the sadnesses of our hearts, whatever it is, Lord God, that might distract us from beholding you so that we might be transformed from one degree of glory to another, so that we might live wisely, so that we might love each other better, so that we might know the God that we worship every Sunday better. So, Father, help us now in these ways by your Holy Spirit. Amen. Guys, friends, welcome um, to Theological Cohorts. It is a program that we do here at Covenant City Church. Um, normally, what I would do in uh, first cohorts, again, is just remind us why we have theological cohorts in the first place, right? Remember that um, if you've been to CCC before, you've heard about the theological cohorts. I like to liken the theological cohorts as um, the kitchen. If, if on Sundays you get to be served a meal, you see the liturgy, you hear our sermons, you hear the things that we're talking about, and we try to apply it to specific ways immediately into your lives. So we're serving you the meal and you just enjoy the meal. Um, theological cohorts is kind of like going back into the kitchen where people are sweating, people are working over what to serve, people are, are, are working through the structures behind what happens on Sunday and going deeper into the, 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 the content of the Bible, the whole counsel of God in such a way where you now start to understand why it is that we do certain things on Sunday, why we emphasize the things that we do on Sunday, and who is the God that we worship on Sunday. And because Sunday is meant to be for a broader you know, congregant and, and audience, um, we can't do everything on Sunday. Um, so I think it is a task of the church in Acts chapter 20, for example. He's, Paul says his ministry is to proclaim the whole counsel of God, right? We're not, not just one aspect of the Bible, not just a few aspects of the Bible, but his ministry, he says, is untainted if he has actually taught the whole counsel of God. So that means from the beginning to the end for Genesis to Revelation, the whole system of theology that is actually proclaimed in the Bible revealed to us is for our benefit. And it is for the task of the church to actually do that well. Um, and if we haven't been doing that, that means it is our fault. But I want to go deeper in why we do theological cohorts. It's not just to reveal to our congregants or to our members what happens in the background, what happens in the kitchen um, before we actually serve the meals on Sunday. But I want to root the, um, the cohorts in church history a little bit more strongly and I want us to see the importance and the urgency, of course, a bit more strongly. We're doing this cohort in the next three weeks. And the retreat, I think, is kind of included because it's on the Holy Spirit. In the next four weeks, on the doctrine of God, right? Nothing more foundational, nothing more primary in your Christian life than knowing who God is. Knowledge of God is eternal life in John 17. But more than that, if we're rooting and understanding the church in light of its history, the church had always been describing God in very particular ways. In other words, the church had always been talking about God in specific ways. And if you don't talk about God in these ways, the church has always been saying, you're not really talking about the Christian God. 
In other words, the church had, had been reading the Bible for 2,000 years, and the church had, been, had a codified understanding of what God, um, who God is, what God has done for us. And if we have not been talking about God in that way, we haven't been talking about the Christian God at all. And in fact, if you look at the history of the church, if you look at Calvin's Geneva and the Reformation, if you look at the ancient church, if you look at the medieval church, the church had always been divided at least into two in terms of its, its division of labor, in terms of the eldership of the church. There were, in Calvin's Geneva, for example, the pastors of the church and the doctors of the church. There were those who were, scholar, those who were engaged in scholarly study for the church, making sure that the church is rooted in its historic traditions, and at the same time, there were the shepherds of the church that were conveying those things to um, the congregants, to the laity. And in the same way, hospitals are normally, if you've been to universities in the West, right, hospitals, you have hospitals that are connected to universities, right? UCLA has its own hospital. Why? Because there were practitioners in the hospitals that were at the same time researchers in the universities. And they were making sure that those research, that research in the university is being practiced in the hospitals, and then that practice in the hospitals is always in touch with the cutting edge of the university. You see, those two things were always well connected. Hello, welcome. Um, you can grab the handouts there in the, uh, at the uh, table. So in other words, it's, it's been the historic model for practitioners, for, for the pastors of the church to be connected with the doctors of the church, and for the doctors of the church to be connected with the practitioners of the church so that theology, life, and doctrine always go together, right? And we're, we're trying to retrieve, and that's a word that I'm going to use quite a bit, retrieve not merely the doctrine of God, but also retrieve the historic Christian witness of what it means to be a church, what it means to be um, the church holistically, which is always this connectedness between the most cutting edge of research and also at the same time the life of the believer, between the practitioners, the doctors, and also at the same time, the scientific community, if you could call it that way. So there's always these two things combined. These two things always go together. But there's an added urgency to it. We not only have lost the institutional connection between the church and the school, between the academy and um, the laity, the, 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 the congregant, but we've also lost much of the doctrinal heritage of the doctrine of God especially in recent days, right? Um, how many of you, you all know what a seminary is, right? Okay, so, so what is a seminary? What do you think happens in a seminary? Let's just get a show of hands and tell me, like, just off the cuff, what, what does a seminary do? You learn about doctrines, okay? That's actually a pretty good answer, right? Most of the time when you go to um, someone else in Jakarta and you tell them, I've been to seminary, Literally, like I've had responses of people saying, so you spend like a couple of weeks in the mountains praying or something, right? Like, like there's this monastic idea, like a seminary is basically a two-year-long retreat where you have like revivals and you have meetings and you're praying with one another. That's what you do, right? Uh, see, that's the idea of a seminary. Why? Because the seminary, believe it or not, wasn't around until about the 19th to 20th century. Did you notice that? Like, you, you think of Martin Luther, who was, the, you know, one of the great reformers um, who started the Protestant Reformation. He didn't go to Wittenberg Theological Seminary. He went to U Wittenberg University. You look at, at all the ancient 
universities in the States, in the UK, Oxford, Cambridge, Edinburgh, St. Andrews, uh, Yale, Harvard, right? They all had divinity schools. University of Chicago, one of the oldest universities, Chicago Divinity School, right? They had divinity schools tethered to the universities. Why? Because in the past, they had understood theology not to be this pietistic, private, individual, devotional thing. They thought that theology was as much a science, was as much an academic discipline as anything else, like philosophy, like the humanities, like literature, like the empirical sciences even. In other words, the seminary, as good as it is, I went to a seminary, right? As much as we've benefited from seminaries, is a distinctly modern phenomenon. Why? Because in modernity, people started to make a distinction between facts and value. You've heard it before. Let's stick with the facts. Let's stick with the science. Religion, let's not talk about that. That's, that's private. That's, that's for the personal sphere, right? And so in the modern movement, given this fact-value distinction from the Enlightenment, people started to say, let's take, the let's take theology out of the universities and put theology for the churches. So seminaries arose. So you want to study theology, you go to seminaries, you go to the monasteries, but if you want to go for a real education, you go to the universities, right? Um, that's the kind of dichotomy that actually arose. And what happens is this, there's this bifurcation between real knowledge and personal piety, between devotional, private values, and publicly accessible, um, rational grounds to actually know something. You see what I mean? But notice that's a modern invention. That's a, that's a very modern invention. And what has happened because of that is um, uh, the church... Has always been rele has relegated its ministers and its teachers to something of a different realm than all of the knowledge. And not only that, church history, the doctrines of the church, were no longer studied very scientifically, very academically anymore. Right? And, and, and soon, what we have in the universities, for example, when you go to university, you don't have to take divinity classes anymore as part of the core curriculum. Um, there's a movement in higher education now that focuses on STEM research. What is that? Science, technology, engineering, mathematics, right? Um, um, management, all, all these practical, quantifiable disciplines. And normally what happens is when a university goes that way, right, the humanities fall behind because that's not quantifiable. That's not objective. That's not. But what has happened is because of this, when the, when the church ministers or theologians or pastors go to university, they are studying all these management skills. They're studying all these tools that are quantifiable, but they're not studying the history of doctrine. They're not studying theology unless they went to seminary. But if you went to seminary, you needed to devote an extra three years of your life, right, on top of your undergraduate studies to actually study this stuff. So what has happened Interestingly enough, in the history of the churches, you have pastors who are very good at managing people, which is a good thing, right? Very good at quantifying budgets. Very good at making sure that their church can sell well and, 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 and marketing skills. But they become pastors without knowing the history of doctrine. They, they personally study the Bible themselves. And so suddenly they're preaching and they're not actually teaching. We are not actually teaching what the church has always believed for 1,800 years. 
because there's no more divinity curricula in, in the schools. And the new, new universities, there isn't even a divinity school anymore, right? Only the ancient universities. And even in the ancient universities, no, because of these movements, they're not teaching the history of the church anymore. So there are just doctrines, therefore, that the church had taken for granted. Taken for granted. They, they would never question anymore. For 1,800 years, it's always been the same. Until now, things have started shifted. Okay, let me just give you two examples. One from the early 19th century, and then the second one from the early 20th century. Okay, so James Kidd wrote a book on the eternal sonship of Christ. This is really starting to get felt in the early 19th century. What do you say? The doctrine of the eternal sonship of Jesus Christ has been received by the Orthodox, and Orthodox just means the common church or the universal at this point, church in all ages. But of late years, however, its truth has been questioned. In other words, what he's observing in the 19th century is for, 19, for, for 1,800 years, this question of the eternal sonship of Jesus Christ had been taken for granted. Nobody's questioned it. But of late years, however, its truth has been questioned. That's interesting. That's an interesting observation. And then Herman Bovink, um, about 60, 70 years later, early 20th century, he says this, Augustine, who's a 4th century theologian, he says, again and again reverted to what? The simplicity of God. God, said he, is pure essence without ex accidents. All right, just, just a show of hands. How many of you here outside of the cohorts have ever heard of the simplicity of God? Okay, Sam, Sam's not allowed to, to go in details. I was not allowed to raise her. Sam's, you know, if you've been a seminary, you're not allowed to say this. But, 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 but how many of you here have actually heard of the simplicity of God? Right? Like that. Okay, that's interesting, right? How about pure essence without accidents? Does that mean God has never been in a car crash? No accidents. And, and then he says, in God, everything is one. God is everything he possesses. He is his own wisdom, his own life, being and living coincide in him. After Augustine, 4th century, remember Augustine's 4th century, we find this teaching in John of Damascus, 6th century, in the work of the Scholastics, which is roughly 7th century to 13th century. And further, in the thought of all Roman Catholic, Lutheran, and Reformed theologians, all the way up until, in other words, the 17th century. So you have this doctrine the simplicity of God, and what Bavink is observing here in the, in the early 20th century is this doctrine that God's simplicity is something that has been presupposed and talked about from at least the 4th century all the way to the 17th century. But now, let me just, again, if I went up tomorrow, right, I'm freaking out because apparently CCC has 200 people come every Sunday now, and I'm like, what do I do? But if I, if I actually like got up, Tomorrow, and the first thing I said is, God is a simple God. You're going to look at me like, what does that mean? Like, God is, does that mean God is dumb? Like, he's a simpleton. No, what is that? But you see, what does that mean? The fact that we don't know what simplicity is, when Bavink is saying here, and James Kidd is saying here, a lot of these doctrines have been simply assumed, right? Simply assumed. What are, what are some things that, that you simply assume and take for granted in your life today? Something that you think about, obviously everybody knows that. Oxygen is real. The sun will rise, right? Like, 
assumed, taken for granted. Everybody knows about it. In other words, if I came up to, in a sermon tomorrow and I used the sun rising up as an analogy, everyone would be like, ah, of course, makes sense, right? What, you see, Boving was saying there was a time when you could talk about God's simplicity the same way you can talk about um, James Bezos being the owner of Amazon. It's remarkable. You read these 16th, 14th century texts, and they're literally like talk in the newspapers, right? Like their form of the newspapers back then. Um, you know, what are the op-ed pieces coming out, or what what's equivalent to op-ed piece coming out in these newspapers? And they were literally talking about in the marketplace. They were debating the eternal generation of the sun. <laughs> like, when was the last time you talked about the eternal generation of the sun in the marketplace? You're buying apples. You know, and you're, you're reading the news, you're, you're talking about a lot of things. I'm pretty sure it's not the eternal sonship of the sun. You, you went to church on Sunday morning, and you're talking about the normal things of life. Like, you know, um, hey, um, you know, there's a Jamba Juice opening downstairs. Um, like, right in the next breath, you would be talking also about the, the current debate about, hey, is God without parts, or is he one? How about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? These were things that were taken for granted. But instead, what are, what are we talking about? You know... The debates that you have in, in your everyday life in the church reflects the things that are being taught in the church. Because if something is taught in the church and you're really digesting it, you're going to start to talk about it. And it's, it's noticeable what you end up talking about, depending on what you've grown up with in the church, right? So if you've grown up in the church and you've been hearing your whole life, right, that um, you've got to think about the best in you. Everybody is in the core a good person. God really believes in you and your life is going to go well, what are instantaneously the pastoral issues that are going to come up? If God really loves me, why is my life so bad? If God really loves me, like why is, am I having marital problems? Like those are the instinctive things that come up because we have actually in the church for the last hundred years at least have taught things that have fostered that kind of questioning. Because we're constantly telling you you're your best self. God loves you. God wants the best for you. That means you're going to have a good family. You're going to have a good job. You're going to have an ecstatic experience. Go to the next retreat. Come to our retreat. But um, you go, you're, going to, you're, you're discussing all these issues, right? Because that's what's being, getting taught in the church. You see what I mean? But you don't exactly have people coming into community groups burning in their hearts. I don't understand how Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one God. How does that comport with Deuteronomy 6.4, that God is one? In fact, um, only recently, I feel like, if you've been coming to our church and you've been listening to our sermons, only recently, hi, welcome. It's okay. Please grab the hand out there. Um, Only recently, you've been been listening to particular sermons. Suddenly, your, your questions start to become different. If God is sovereign, why do we pray? You're starting to ask that in our community groups. If God is sovereign, why do we pray? How is God just? And if God is just, why does he save people? Why doesn't God save everyone? Right? Those questions arise depending on what's being preached. Okay? So, these theologians are saying these things in the 19th and 20th century, and that's that's a big issue. Like the fact that we haven't heard of the simplicity of God, which apparently had been presupposed by the whole church for a, this whole period of time, 
is really alarming to us, that means because we haven't been teaching that. We've forgotten it, in other words, right? We have forgotten our own heritage, okay? I want, I want you to think of church history and church doctrine. Uh, you know, we have a temptation because of the technological advancements in this world and life. The new is always better. The new is always better. You got an iPhone 8, suddenly you got an iPhone X. Better camera, everything, you're always impressed, right? Um, what are the universities doing saying now? That's probably the, the, the best, most advanced technology, okay? Theology is not like that. Theology, the way it has gone in church history, it's not that the new is always better. But have you guys seen that terrible um, Will Smith movie, After Earth? Maybe because it was terrible. <laughs> but um, how about that, that Tom Cruise movie where um, he's got a lot of clones of himself? And, and what is that called? He's got a lot of clones of himself and he's traveling from one planet to another. Age of Tomorrow. Or the other Will Smith movie that's not as bad. I Am Legend. All right? What do these movies have in common? They're post-apocalyptic. What does it mean to have a post-apocalyptic movie? It means that the Earth has ended, like 50, 60, Walking Dead, right? 50, 60 years ago, the Earth had ended. Life has been decimated. All of the technology has been forgotten. What do you do in a post-apocalyptic age? You survive. You scavenge. You retrieve. You see what I mean? You retrieve. In other words, what do you do in a technological age... Oh, sorry, in a post-technological age, in a post-apocalyptic world is, you have all this technology, human advancements, that's been forgotten and in a lot of ways buried. What do you do to survive? You don't just have to make new stuff. You actually have to dig up old stuff and say, I have to go back to my sources and find ways in which this technology, even though it's been long dead and buried, could be revived again. Okay. And what, I'm, what I've been trying to argue with you in the last 15 minutes is this. The Enlightenment and the modern age and the modern church is kind of like a post-apocalyptic environment. What you have right now in the newest methods and the newest theologies, the newest things that the church is teaching, is not the most advanced, most cutting edge. Rather, it's really like the mossy, nasty stuff and the gangrene that grows up after the apocalypse. If the Enlightenment is the apocalypse that has cut off our ministers from the best education of theology, that has cut off uh, the theological curriculum from actually reaching us, has cut off the understanding that the church has to have both have doctors and pastors at the same time, right? The modern age is a post-apocalyptic church, and what it needs to go forward is not by making new things up from the scratch, but rather by retrieving and scavenging what was lost in the past. Okay? Babe, Indi yeah, Indita, sorry. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think we could, because I think the thing about theology is um, we've got sources to cover, right? I mean, God has revealed himself in scripture, and the church had been reflecting on that for 1,700 years. And then suddenly the Enlightenment comes and makes us forget all those things, because the next generation were not educated in the same way. And so what I'm trying to say is 
what we need, therefore, is to look back to our sources and retrieve our sources because the Enlightenment has cut us off. And I don't think it's possible for us to reinvent the wheel. There's no improving, I think, on what 1,700 years of church history had given us, given all the debates that they had, go, they had gone through. Does that make sense? So theology, in other words, needs sorely a retrieval project. And what we're trying to do in theological cohorts is to make the things that were once intuitive, taken for granted in our churches, um, uh, God's simplicity, God's triunity, the eternal sonship of, 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 the, of Jesus Christ. These are things that were once taken for granted and things that need not be debated. And by the way, one of those things is predestination, right? That these things have been taken for granted. And one of the sessions that we're going to discuss is Jacob Arminius, which is going to be in the last week after the, the retreat that we're going to have. In, and we're going to see that Jacob Arminius himself, who we would think today Arminianism as the opposing force of Calvinism, Jacob Arminius grew up in the Reformed tradition. He took for granted a lot of the things that would make today's Arminians, if I'm using these terms for now, but I'll explain them later, they would make present-day Arminians kind of queasy. Because Arminius took a lot of things for granted that we have completely forgotten today. Okay, So, again, what we're trying to do in cohorts is not, not merely to say that here's the kitchen underneath what happens on Sunday, but to say, let's retrieve, let's go on this scavenging adventure, right, to retrieve the best of our church uh, theology that's been forgotten in ages past, and, and we, 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 we've forgotten it, and therefore we need, we need to get it back. We need to get it back. So it's a project of retrieval, okay? So how many of you had been through our membership classes at CCC. Okay, I'm gonna sketch, so for this, some of you, for this, for the next three minutes, it's gonna be a review, and then it's, I'm gonna just make this a little bit more clear to you what retrieval is, okay, if it hasn't been clear enough for you. In, in, in our CCC membership course, right, I, 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 I sought to summarize all of church history in 30 minutes, and here's the, the diagram that I drew. What we had, in the history of the church, which is why we could presuppose so many doctrines, and everybody in the church could assume this for a long time, was we had the writing of the New Testament, right? We had the Christ event. Jesus was resurrected here, right? This is the writing of the New Testament. That's the foundation of our belief. It's not very clear. So that's the foundation of our belief. And from then on rose Christianity. And when Christianity rose, from the time of the New Testament, we gone ahead and we studied the New Testament and a lot of the Old Testament. We've gone ahead and we um, sought to discuss then how does the new relate to the old and how does the threeness of God that we find in the New Testament, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, baptize them in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When Jesus, we see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit language all over the New Testament. So how does the threeness of God relate to the oneness of God? The church got together in a lot of councils, a lot of debates, and we made, a, made and recognized the Nicene Creed. Remember that? And in the Nicene Creed, in 325 AD, we had the doctrine of the Trinity codified. Like nobody debated about the Trinity anymore. We believe that God was one in essence and three in persons, right? Um, a lot of heresies were sprouting up between this period and that period. Does Father, Son, and Holy Spirit mean three gods? 
is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit like, you know, you being a father, a son, and a policeman at the same time. It's just three different modes of who you are, but really just one thing, right? So the Nicene Creed debunked both of those things. God is not three gods. God is not like you being father, son, and a cop at the same time. Not just three modes of being, not three gods. So we have the doctrine of the Trinity codified. Everybody agreed on that. No debate. Okay, and then 120 years later, we have what was called the Chalcedonian Creed. And the, and the Council of Chalcedon and the Chalcedonian Creed, remember this, we had a codification, not of the Trinity, but of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Son of God who had a full divine nature and a full human nature. Jesus Christ was not a demigod. It's not like Zeus who married a, a human and then you had someone who's like Star-Lord, right? You guys have seen Guardians of Galaxy 2, right? Like he's part God, part human being, right? Jesus Christ is not that. He's not a demigod. He's full human, fully divine, one in, one in person, right? But two natures, right? They had to codify that. Neither was he just fully God, but not fully human. Like so some, some theologians in the century were saying, okay, Christ didn't really eat. He didn't really die. That was just a phantasm. That was like, he was like a ghost. He's really divine, but not really fully human. He just seemed human. So that's a heresy. We don't want to believe in that. Other people were saying he's fully human, but because he was fully obedient, God make him, God made him to become like God. Okay. That's the Mormonism and Jehovah Witness kind of theology that's sprouting up today. That was a heresy taken care of in the, in the fifth century. <laughs> don't be... Please don't be a Mormon. Um, and um, uh, see, knowing church history can make you aware of these things and then make you not worried, right? You, you come across a Mormon or a Jehovah Witness who says things like Jesus was once human and then he became like God. And then you could think to yourself, well, in 451 AD, we took care of that, man. Why are you still discussing that? Like, you're not, if you knew your history, you're not prone to repeat history's errors. You see what I mean? Like, if people come up to you and say, Asians are the best race. We've got to get rid of other races. You immediately think, Hitler, don't do it <laughs> because you know history. Don't repeat the mistakes of history. So Chalcedon and Nicaea, they codified for you the Trinity. And, and by the way, with Nicaea, simplicity, which is what Bobbing was talking about in that quote, Trinity and simplicity, which is the doctrine of God. We'll, we'll discuss simplicity at a greater length next week. Chalcedon, you, you covered Christology right? So who was Christ? What, it, what was he composed of? And then what happened, this is again, review from membership class. You had the Reformation. This is kind of fast forwarding a lot of history, but Reformation in the 15th and 16th centuries. And what happened in the Reformation was not merely, so the Reformation, by the way, Presuppose Christology of Chalcedon. Nobody in the Reformed tradition questioned Chalcedon's Christology. The Reformation presupposed the Nicene Creed and Trinity and Simplicity. The Protestant Reformation was not a debate about Christology and was not a debate about Trinity and Simplicity. All right? Luther and Calvin didn't come up and say, the church had gotten the Trinity wrong. Nobody was saying that. The Reformation was a Reformation about the doctrine of salvation. 
how are we saved? Nothing in these two creeds said anything about how you were saved. They believed in the Trinity. They believed in Christology. But it didn't tell you what Christ had done for you. It told you who Christ is, but not what he had done for you. So the Reformation period codified further how were you saved. And, and this is when the church had, a, had the first major split, right? You had the Roman Catholic Church. I'll just call it Romanism on the one hand. And then you have the Reformation, the Reform, Protestantism on the other hand. And they also wrote their own confessions of the faith, right? Just as these were proto-confessions, they were creeds, right? The Romanists had the Council of Trent, where they debated things about the Reformation and said that the Reformational theology of Luther and Calvin were wrong. And then the Reformed, which is where we as Covenant City Church are, had the Westminster Confession in Westminster Abbey, Westminster CF, okay? So this was, again, a debate about salvation. How were you saved? Are you saved by the sacraments of the church, by the mediation of a pope, by um, you entering the church and then meriting salvation for yourself? Or were you justified by grace alone, by faith alone, by Christ alone, by no mediation of a pope, by no mediation of the sacraments? Huge debate on that, right? So, so this is where we stand. Notice then, a lot. if you meet Roman Catholic friends, again, this is, a lot of this is review. If you meet Roman Catholic friends and they say, well, you know, the Catholics came first. Uh, you can simply say, no, you didn't. We, we, you, the Catholics didn't have a confession of faith at the time of the Reformation. The, the, the Reform, by the way, we didn't call ourselves, again, uh, Protestants. When Calvin and Luther wrote, we, they didn't say, we're protesting, right? We're protesters. We didn't, didn't say that. They call themselves Catholics. They call themselves Reformed Catholics. We still believed in the ancient church, everything the ancient church ever believed in. In fact, we would say we hold them more consistently than the, Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church. We're just developing it in such a way that our doctrine of salvation is more biblical, more clear, rooting us back to the ancient church. Okay, so that to you is um, review for membership class, okay? Now, what I didn't cover in membership class was what had happened, I used a different marker to signify this, what it, I wish there was more space here, but I can't. So uh, just pretend that what I'm going to write here is above this, okay? What had happened after the 17th century was the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment. Up until this point, if you went to university and if you went to any, if you, if you just grew up, you know, you were, you had to study the Nicene Creed. You had to. Right? In fact, in some countries, you were born just by being a Genevan, just by being English, just by being whatever nation, you were baptized. So, like, the national identity and the, and the, and the religious identity of Christianity became fused in a lot of ways because of the monarchy and all those sort of ways. There's some bad things that could come with that, I, I know, but one benefit is everyone grew up in the church and in the universities learning the Nicene Creed learning the Chalcedon, and if you're Reformed, learning the Westminster Confession of Faith, 
or if you're Roman Catholic, learning in the Council of Trent, right? You have Dominican schools, Jesuit schools, and Oxford, Cambridge, Edinburgh, uh, we're all Protestant schools, right? You go to Edinburgh University now, there's a, there's a, there's a statue of John Knox, right? Who, okay, that doesn't, maybe you guys don't know who John Knox is. John Knox was a Scottish reformer, right? You have to walk into the Divinity School, there's a statue of John Knox reminding you that this used to be a Protestant university. You see what I mean? Like, you had to study these things. What had happened in the 18th, 19th century is this thing called the Enlightenment, okay? And the Enlightenment basically gradually cut off the next generation from all of this. Just cut it off. And they, they said, basically, the Bible is not... Um, not reliable, not useful, not at all in any way tethered to education, shouldn't be part of public knowledge, should be a private thing, like the fact-value dichotomy I discussed earlier, right? So you have the Enlightenment, which basically cut this whole thing off, cut the whole project off. Now suddenly you went to school and you studied Descartes, you studied Kant, you studied um, John Locke, you studied Max Weber, you studied other people who critique Protestantism, critique Roman Catholicism, critique supernaturalism. You grew up reading Darwin and all those sort of things. Which, by the way, I'm not against reading those things. But th that was basically all they had to read. They weren't any longer required to read Augustine or John Owen or whoever. Name your church father, name your church theologian. So the Enlightenment cut it off, okay? So people are growing up, and then they, they would hear Protestant-sounding things, like the Bible alone. But because they haven't been reading the Reformed, they haven't been reading Chalcedon, they haven't been reading the Nicene Creed, they haven't been reading any of these church doctrines and the histories of the debates, they hear things like the Bible alone, and they really take that literally. And then they say, we're not going to read anyone else. We're not gonna, I'm it's just me and the Bible personal devotions, and then, and then they just read the Bible for their own, divorce that from all of church history, divorce that from all of church doctrine. And then they started saying things like, I received a vision from God, and I'm going to start a church, right? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a revival. I'm going to take the Bible, and because I believe in the Bible alone, I'm a good Protestant, which do, doesn't mean, that's not what Protestantism means in the original, original historical context, right? And, and I'm going to just start my own churches, so what happened after Enlightenment, because all of these things were forgotten, essentially, and education was built from the ground up, you have, after this, what is called denominationalism. And not only now do you have two branches of Christianity, major branches of Christianity, but now you have many. You have Charismatics, uh, you have New Lutherans, you have Reformers still there, we're, we're around, right? Um, we have uh, Pentecostals, we have Baptists, we have Quakers, we have Methodists, we have, um, am I missing anything? Um, Seventh-day Adventists, right? And then we have um, Prosperity Gospel. Uh, let's, they're, they're, they're the cults too, okay, let's, let's include them. 
Mormonism, Jehovah Witness. We have Unitarians. Don't forget them. We have um, um, liberational theologies. We have feminist theologies. We have environmentalist theologies. So, so, and it, by the way, almost every single one of those call themselves Protestant, right? And then now a lot of people say, well, you know, all you Christians, you, you say you're all about the Bible, but if the Bible was so clear, like how come there's so many, so many different kinds of churches here? You know what my response to that is? That wasn't the case. Like you look at the Reformed confessions, the Dutch confession, Scottish, uh, uh, English, uh, French, um, um, American Presbyterianism, right? They're all pretty, they're all pretty unified. <laughs> you don't get much debate on a lot of things, right? You know, they were debating, sure, of course they were debating, but they were debating things like, you know, when Adam fell into sin, was it his intellect as damaged as his will or were they equally damaged? Or They weren't debating like, you know, did God predestine? They're like, of course he did. Nobody was debating that. Even Jacob Arminius were like, you, you can't deny predestination. You knew that? They were, they, were, they were debating, but they were debating intra-confessional things that didn't require them to break off into different churches. But you see, if you divorce the study of the Bible and the churches because of the alignment from all of church history, and then suddenly you have new 18 to 25 to 35-year-olds reading the Bible for the first time, never reading any of this, of course you're going to get a new church. Of course you're going to get a new theology. But actually, they're not very new. Because most of the time, they're heresies that sprout out in the early church that have been taken care of. You see what I mean? Same with the doctrine of God. How, how many of you had heard that, uh, this is apparently a prevalent thing here, okay, um, that uh, uh, the Christian life could be divided into three stages of history. Old Testament was the time of the Father. The New Testament at first was the time of the Son. And now it's the time of the Pentecost and the Holy Spirit. How many heard that before? And now it's not about the Son or the Father, it's just the Spirit. You heard that before? Bro, that's taken care of, like right here. It's called pneumatomachianism. Pneuma means spirit. It's, it's a spirit powerism, basically, that, that has been taken care of in the Nicene Creed, that divorces the Holy Spirit from the work of the Father and the Son. That's been taken care of. How many of you guys have heard of um, the view that somehow... The father was primary and the son was secondary. The son was created by the father. You've, you've probably heard that. Of course you have heard that before. But that's been taken care of. Why are we still debating that? How many of you maybe have, heard, have even heard that, you know, um, uh, 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 God changes. This is more common. God changes all the time. In fact, he doesn't know the future. He has to change according to what happens and he sees it in history. What if I told you that nobody in the history of the church has ever believed that until the 20th century? Not a single church theologian had ever believed that God doesn't know the future. But if, if you went to churches today, right? Or maybe you grew up, I grew up maybe tempted to believe this, right? God doesn't know the future. And so he changes his mind all the time. He reacts, he responds. What if I told you that's because of this and then all these things that happened here was because of this forgetting. That's why we have theological cohorts. 
That's why we, have, we were studying again the doctrine of God, because so much of what we were trying to do is retrieval, right? Um, let, me, let me read to you these two quotes, and then we'll take a break. From John Webster. And here's what he says about retrieval. So I, I gave you what I drew here in word form here, right? Um, right below that, there's John Webster's quotes. In short, though theologies of retrieval are widely divergent, or a lot of theologians today are engaging in retrieval, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox Protestants, they entertain a common attitude to the biblical and theological traditions which precede and enclose contemporary theology. In other words, all retrieval projects are very positive about these theological traditions which precede or come before contemporary theology. More trustful, more confident in their contemporary serviceability, unpersuaded of the superiority of the present age. We're unpersuaded. The major achievements of theology, he goes on, and the mode of retrieval have been to commend a more celebratory style of theological portrayal and to rehabilitate classical sources of Christian teaching and draw attention to their potential in furthering the theological task. Remember what I said about today's age as being post-apocalyptic in terms of theology. We need to retrieve and celebrate and rehabilitate classical sources to further today's theological task. For systematic theology, this suggests that exegetes and historians often prove more congenial and valuable neighbors than critical philosophers. In other words, how do we advance in theology? We don't go to the cutting-edge philosopher. We go to those who are exegeting the Bible, New Testament theologians, the Old Testament theologians, and the historians, um, rather than critical philosophers, especially when the history of Christian thought is studied through the lens of tradition and church. To look at the past in this way brings some substantial benefits. Most of all, it can encourage resistance to eminentist explanations of Christian doctrine. What do I mean by eminentist explanation of Christian doctrine? It means eminentist is a fancy word of just saying it's a kind of theology or a kind of explanation that makes God much like yourself. He's eminently like you. So God doesn't know the future. God responds to you. Um, God, is, God is basically your buddy and butler. You know, that, that kind of theology. Of Christian doctrine, after the manner of Trolch, and subsume historical and dogmatic theology under social processes. And again, that's just an academic way of saying, how do you subsume historical and dogmatic theology under social processes? Here's how you do it on the ground. Well, um, people don't like to be offended. um, And if you talk about sin, socially that offends people, and people are not going to come to your church. So let's change our theology according to what the society wants. Let's not talk about sin anymore. Let's not talk about God being unchangeable anymore. Let's, go, let's make God more relatable. Let's make God more your friend type of person, right? That's subsuming dogmatic theology, or dogmatic It's not like I'm dogmatic, but more like what the church has always believed. I'm dogmatic about it because this is what the church has always believed. Under social processes, what he's saying is today's theologians and churches are mo- more prone than ever because we've gotten this to make the doctrine of God more relatable to society and therefore forgetting the church's witness tweaks the doctrine of God so that he's more palatable to society. So God is just a God of love. He's never angry. No such thing as sin or judgment. No, Trinity, that doesn't make any sense. Let's let's really tone that down. 
let's let's make him more understandable to us, right? That's what Webster is saying. And he's saying a theology of retrieval or this project of retrieval for our churches, for our academics, is simply this attitude of let's get back so that we can go forward. Okay, let me stop there for questions and then break. Mike. I believe so, yes. Oh, is denominationalism only with the Protestant? I w- yeah, um, if, if, uh, if, if, if the influence of the alignment for the reform is a kind of theological anarchy, relativism, um, for the Roman Catholic, they really pride themselves in being unified, right? We are the Roman Church; we're, we're not changing, right? Um, the the only the main the main thing that has affected Romanism is they're still pretty institutionally unified, but they're fractured internally. So we have different theologians within the Roman institution saying different things. But not only that, they still have to front the, the unity stuff. So it's more like they've changed. They're going to disagree with this. So take this for what it's worth. They've changed their doctrine multiple times in multiple ways in the last 200 years. And then they have to try to, to persuade you that these changes are not real changes. They've been the same for 2,000 years. So when you read the current day Roman Catholic like official doctrines, I think they're substantially pretty different than what they believe, say, in the Council of Trent. Uh, but they have to try to make ways or argue, and I think through really unpersuasive means, that their doctrine is still the same as today. So they, they spend a lot of time trying to prove that even though they have changed, they haven't really changed. So there's a lot of in, in, inner institutional conflict, I'll just say. Yeah. Does that make sense? Roman Catholic? Yes, I would say so. And in fact, a lot of Roman Catholic theologians are seeing that. and are, That's why Webster, in that first quote, he says, though theologies of retrieval are widely divergent, what he just means by that is there are Roman Catholics and Protestants and Orthodox theologians who are all doing this, but in very different ways. Yeah. Uh, the Roman Catholics or the Protestants? Um, I think to a certain extent, there are some new doctrines that have come from them. So, for example, Karl Rahner, if, um, he is a, a 20th century theologian. He, I don't know if you guys heard this term, some people in the States, it's become a common term. Have you heard of the term anonymous Christian? So, so the Roman Catholic theologians, they see the global expansion of Christianity. I think this is one example of novelty, one example of a new doctrine with respect to them. They've seen the global expansion of Christianity and they're way more aware of the different religions of today, and they're seeing uh, the influence of Islam, for example. Now, what do we do then with all these other major religions that we are seeing? Because in the past, we're not as globally aware, right? Now we're globally aware. There's so many other religions, so many unchurched areas. Are we gonna have the, have the guts to say 
that these people are not saved? Muslims and like Buddhists and Hindus who have never heard the gospel. So Karl Rahner, who was a Roman Catholic theologian, came up with this term, anonymous Christian, which means that they're Christians on the inside, but outside they don't profess the faith and they've never been part of the Catholic Church. So you can have Muslims who are actually anonymous Christians, never heard the gospel, never been to church, but they could also still be saved. And I would say nobody really has believed in that doctrine until today. And that's, that's, that's Karl Rahner um, as a Roman Catholic theologian as expressing those kind of views today. I think, I think Rahner, Rahner died in the 80s, but I, I gotta be careful. I've I, I got to double check. It's pretty fairly new, yeah, I would say so. And I think that's, the Catholic Church had always been very good and, and, and accommodating to the culture around them. Um, I think that's, that's how they can consolidate so much agreement is because they, they, they find ways to agree with the common culture. And I think that the notion of the anonymous Christian is a, um, it's accommodating to the very inclusivist, modern mindset of like, let's not condemn anyone, let's just tolerate and maybe they'll still be saved, right? Yes, though technically they're actually Christians. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Right. It's it's be, exactly. I would think it's pretty offensive, actually, right? But I think it's to for. I think it's bridging the gap between the secularists and the Roman Catholics, or between the the, the secularist culture, and you know, because secularism always asks Christians and Roman Catholics. You know, you're, why are you judging other people? Why are you judging other religions? And this, this anonymous Christian category allows churches to say things like, well, if they're good people and they're actually consistent with their own faith, um, Christ considers them anonymous Christians and saves them anyway. So it makes them more palatable to the modern culture. Maybe not to, when, when you meet a Muslim, they would, they would probably be offended by that. Um, but if you're like in New York, that's pretty, that's an easy card of like saying like, hey, you know, I, I'm like you, you know what I mean? Yeah. Mike. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I would say that the Enlightenment hasn't been entirely bad. I think it's been very negative in terms of us forgetting our heritage. Very negative. But but the Enlightenment grew out of, um, I would say, distorted versions of Protestant principles, right? They would say freedom of conscience, freedom to think rationally, freedom to be an individual and not be in conformity with tyranny. Those are very Protestant, initially very Protestant ideas, right? Um, but they just took it, 
they took the Protestant ideals, but severed it from Protestant worldview. Does that make sense? And then made it into its own thing. So I would say oh, so much of the Enlightenment owes itself to Protestant ideology. Um, some of the good that it has given us, I think, is we can celebrate the technological advancements that the Enlightenment project has given us. Um, but in terms of worldview, I'm, not, I'm just not sure. You see what I mean? So more of the, the practical outworkings, the, the fact that we have modern plumbing and we, I can go downstairs and buy stop cold and have paracetamol, that's, like, that's, that's, the, that's products of the Enlightenment. Um, that's, you know, the, the church had been afraid of empirical investigation. Right? We, we used to believe in a flat earth and we, we stood on that. So it has corrected us in a lot of ways. So I wouldn't denounce it entirely as a work of Satan or something, but I would say in terms of forgetting our past, it's been hugely terrible. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, go for it, go for it. Yeah, yeah. I would say they would make those distinctions, and I would say technologically and economically, it's been very good. But um, in terms of, with respect to Christian doctrine, it's been very bad. And I would agree with that, yeah. And, and part of the Enlightenment's um, influences, because they value reason alone as the standard of authority, they've taken a look at the Bible and they say, whatever doesn't conform to what makes sense to you, you should get rid of it. So movements like denying the Trinity, denying that God knows the future, denying predestinarianism, that's more an enlightenment thing rather than anything from, from church history, I would argue. Yeah. You might find seeds of it, but they're always curbed because everyone is schooled in, in these ways of thinking. But yeah, I, I would say just one thing um, before we take a, a quick break. This is, this, is, this is the history of Christianity to the West, right? Like the Enlightenment was a Western thing, and this happened in Europe mostly, right? I would say, um, uh, um, but we owe, like for, for, God's, for some reason, in God's providence, the history of Christianity has moved left rather than right, right? It's moved to the West rather than to Asia, right? So this is what the West is dealing with, and we have denominationalism. And for better or for worse, um, Western, uh, uh, that's where Christianity is going. It's went to the, to the West. And the West has influenced us now, right? And this is where we stand because in so many ways we are influenced by the West. But the reason why you see in global contexts like China and um, Japan receiving Christianity in very different ways is because they don't have any of this history, right? The Reformation happened in Germany, right? The, you know, they don't have any of this history. So in a lot of ways, when Christianity is now hitting China, and, 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 and these Eastern Asian global contexts, you have to start from scratch in some ways because you can't tell them, hey, you know, in the past you guys studied the Chalcedonian Creed. There wasn't that, you know. So you have to reintroduce everything to, to Asian contexts. And that's why we have less of a Christian history than we do in the West. Western secularism is, in a lot of ways, um, a distorted child of Christianity, um, but Asian contexts are in a lot of ways just untouched by Christianity. 
you know, the Western context have taken Christianity's ideals of love, of freedom, of identity, of individuality, and then they distorted it. But Asian context is still very much like the ancient world, patriarchal, hierarchical, um, very much traditional, right? So here, they have no, no issues dealing with God's justice and um, God's um, anger, but they have huge problems dealing with God's forgiveness and, and God freeing you up to do something that is true to yourself, true to your identity. In the West, they have huge problems with God's you know, authority and all those sort of things, but very okay with God's love and forgiveness. Anyway, that's just one observation. Okay, let's take a break. Be back in five or so minutes. I'm sorry, we haven't met yet, by the way, I think. Have we? Davida. Davida, nice to meet you. Yeah. How, how did you hear about us? Have you been uh, going to church? Yeah. Uh, all right, so um, I hope that's clear so far about why cohorts and why specifically the doctrine of God, right? These are important topics, and we need to retrieve sound doctrine because, um, as I've argued, um, the, the modern-day church is a lot like a post-apocalyptic movie. We need to be scavenging the past, retrieve the past so that we can actually move forward rather than just make up something new for ourselves. Okay, so where are we going? Um, I hope I've convinced you that this is therefore important. This, this retrieval project is important. Uh, you know, one of the things that one of my old profs told me is, at the beginning of every class, convince them why they made a good decision of signing up to the class. So be convinced. Okay, good. So let me, let me now go, go more directly to the subject matter of, of the doctrine of God and where we're going for the rest of the course. How many of you guys are going to retreat too, by the way? You just happened to go to retreat as well. Okay, cool. Cool. So um, I'm not covering the Holy Spirit as much because the retreat will cover the Holy Spirit. So I hope you would enjoy that as well. And the Holy Spirit is part of the doctrine of God. All right, um, that sponge is an amazing razor. Uh, anyway, where are we going? So why the, what, what's at stake here at um, the understanding the doctrine of God? Why should we know God better? And I think I won't spend too much time on this because if you're here and if you're Christians, it's, it shouldn't be that much of a push for you to say knowing God is pretty important. Because Christianity at, at, at bottom is a covenantal relationship with God, right? You have a relationship with God. You have fellowship with him because of your Lord Jesus Christ. And so we want to know God better because we're in relationship with him. You can't know, you can't have a relationship with someone that you don't know, right? That's why I often joke, that's what you're, on your first dates, never go on a movie because you never actually talk during a movie, right? You might get nervous about whether you're going to hold her hand at what point, but you don't actually know the person that you're talking with when you're going on a first date. So to get to know somebody, they need to be vulnerable with you. They need to reveal themselves to you. And God has revealed himself to us. And for us to know him, 
and for us to have a relationship with him, we need to know him. But let me just push that point a little bit further through clear biblical texts that tell us and exhort us to know God. So in 2 Corinthians 3.18, for example, this is a key text on, for the doctrine of sanctification or your progress in maturity in the Christian life. Look at what it says. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So, notice that what is at stake here is transformation. Paul says in the beginning of verse 18, he says, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. What is playing off of there is your, who you are as a human being being made in the image of God. If you're in the image of something, um, maturity is dependent upon whether or not you actually image that something. And at this case, it is God. So there's a sense in which God's glory can be replicated by you or imaged by you, right? So the way you grow as a Christian is by beholding the glory of the Lord. And, and notice Paul's doctrine of sanctification here, Paul's doctrine of transformation, does not rely on technique. You don't grow by knowing five things to do, right? He actually says just behold the glory of the Lord. If you're captivated by something, uh, you would innately desire it. You would behold it, okay? Um, since, again, a lot of singles in this room. So <laughs> dating analogies are often helpful, right? My, my Old Testament professor back in seminary uses this example a lot in, in classes. He would say, one time there was this crummy seminary student who comes to class. He's always a slob. He's always wearing a T-shirt and shorts, right, and, to class every morning. And it, it's obvious that he hasn't showered. It's questionable whether he's brushed his teeth and so on, right? So he's, he's always coming to class in this way. But then suddenly one day, you know, no matter how many, by the way, no matter how many times this prof said, you know, you should probably clean up and get to class before, I mean, shower before you go to class, stuff like that. He always tells this person the same thing every week. And then suddenly he shows up with a suit and a bow tie, clean shaven, everything is great and clean and, and nice. And, you know, so the prof was like, okay, this is a change. And he's been doing this every week. And then the prophet's wondering, okay, I've told you every week you got to clean up, but you haven't been cleaning up. So what happened here? He met a girl who happened to be in the class, right? So wh what, what took him to be transformed? Not by commands, but by beholding. This time it's desires. If you behold something and you see this thing as attractive, it doesn't suddenly seem like a burden to you to do certain things, to attain it, Right? Um, nobody, and this is, I guess, for the girls in this room, nobody goes shopping and says, oh, man, here goes another 50,000. Here goes another 1 million. You know, they don't think about it. It's not costly for them, right? You're not commanded to shop. Why? You, you just do it because you desire it, right? And this is something that's been true for the doctrine of sanctification for ages. People, the, the best of Christian theology has always told us, you don't change by trying hard or by simply thinking about the commands go clean up, go wake up early, go whatever. You, you, you are transformed when you desire something. When a higher love replaces your other loves. When your love for this girl outweighs your desire for comfort, right? When your love for this handbag outweighs your desire for two million rupiah in your pocket. Whatever it might be. Those are silly examples, but take it to the, to, to the doctrine of God. You are transformed by beholding the glory of the Lord. Now, what does glory mean? 
Glory is simply the weight of something. It's, 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 the, it's the inherent worth of something, okay? It's, it's something that innately is attractive about it. Why do you buy a pearl? You don't buy a pearl because it's useful. You don't take a pearl and then put it on a hammer and try to you know, make a cupboard out of it, right? You buy a pearl because it's beautiful. Why do you look at art? You don't, you don't buy a beautiful piece of art so that you can use it for something else. You buy it because simply it has its own glory to it. It's attached to it. So in other words, beauty is something that is good in and of itself. Glory is something that is attractive in and of itself. It's an end in itself. It's a weight in itself. It's a character of God. So we behold the character of God. So we got to know that character so that we might be transformed. And if we're going to do a little bit of a biblical theology and read the glory of the Lord there and in Paul in light of how John defines glory. How does John define glory? We've been going through the book of John and CCC. Glory in the book of John is defined in at least two ways. First is you have the glory. Uh, so you have glory in 2 Corinthians 3.18. Glory is how we're transformed. And glory in the gospel of John is defined in at least in two ways. In John 17, you have glory in terms of the being of God. Uh, is that five? Yes, five. You have the glory of God, but not just the glory of God um, in abstract. It's the glory of God that Jesus and the Father had, the Son of God and, and, and the Father had before the world existed. Notice that? In other words, what is God like in and of himself? So, for example, if you think of God's love for you, that's pretty glorious. God loves you. God is a God of love, and that love is expressed to you. Now, the question is, I don't know, sir, but when, when you put it that way, that love of God is a love expressed given your creation and given who you are. God loves you, right? That's God's glory with respect to his creature. That's not God's glory in and of himself. What does God's love look like in and of himself without respect to creatures? Okay? So the first sense of God's glory is simply God's being in and of himself. We call this ontology. The, the essence of God, the being of God, with, without respect to anything outside of him, the essence of who he is, okay? Um, just really quickly, um, what, is, what is something essential rather than something contingent? I've used this example before, but it's worth just redefining these terms. If something is essential to you, you can't be who you are without it, right? Um, so, hey, Tazar. So if your name is Timotheus, right? Um, so Tim. Um, if, 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 if Tim here, let's say, I'm not, I'm not wishing this upon you, but let's say you get into, into a, a tragic thing and you, you, you lose your nose. All right, you lose your nose, and then you come in here, you, you don't have a nose anymore. Will, will, will Tim still be Tim? Yes, right? He would still be who he is, even without a nose. What does that mean? What does it tell you? His nose is not essential to who he is. He'd still be Tim without it, okay? If Tim came in tomorrow and he was bald, bald Tim, like, would he still be Tim? Yes, because 
that's not essential to who he is, right? So, in other words, what makes Tim who he is? Maybe you might want to say it's his identity, it's his, it's his, his humanness, his human nature, you might want to say. If Tim wasn't human, he wouldn't be Tim anymore. If Tim didn't have his parents, well, actually, that's debatable. If Tim didn't have his very personalized history, he wouldn't be Tim anymore. These are things that are, that are essential to your identity. Okay? So when we talk about God's ontology, we're talking about the things that are essential to who he is. Okay? Then John 17, 5 says, God's glory, part of God's glory, is who he is even before the world began. He already had a glory to him. Even when there were no creatures to behold his glory, no creatures to experience his love, his redemption, his activity, he would still be glorious. Which is going to be very important as we go forward tomorrow. God is self-contained. God is glorious in and of himself. So behold that. There's a second sense of God's glory, and that is God's works. Look at what it says in John 13, 31. This is talking about Judas here. When he had gone out, when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Now, what kind of glory is Jesus talking about there? It's a glory of God's working, right? Jesus is saying, now that he's about to be betrayed, he's about to be crucified, there's another side of God's glory that is being expressed. It's not the kind of glory before the foundation of the world. It's the glory of God in the works of God in creation, in God's accommodation, in God's condescension. He does things in creation that discloses his glory, right? He's about to go be betrayed. He's about to go die on a cross. That is a particular kind of glory. In the cross, you see God's love, his justice, everything. That is his glory. So if 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that you're transformed by beholding God's glory. God's glory, biblically speaking, at least to the Gospel of John, is in both senses of God's being in and of himself, and also God's works in creation. Right? His works. His, in other words, his economy. Not economy as in finance or in the business world, but economy simply referring to the works of God. Okay, so you have the ontological glory of God and the economic works of God. You have God with respect to himself and God with respect to the things outside of God. All right. Or if you want to put it in terms of retrieving our Christian heritage, as I've argued for the first hour, this is God's works at intra or God's being at intra and God's works ad extra. God, in reference to himself, ad intra. God, with respect to outside of himself, ad extra. And it is very important that we keep these two things always distinct. Okay? Keep these two things always distinct. Just one example. When I said, when I, when I say something like, Jesus wept, and so God wept. So God weeps. When I say God weeps, am I referring to God life at intra or at extra? At extra, why? 
It's an action that he does outside of himself, right? So it's not in his inner life. It's in his outer works, you see? Okay, now, now you, start, you, start, you start taking more things, okay? God died. Ad intra or ad extra? Ad extra, right? You can't, I hope that's, that's pretty clear. God doesn't die in his inner life, okay? Now, let's, keep, let's take things a little bit, a little bit further here. Um, would God still be love if he never loved you? Yes. You sure you want to say that? Yes, right? God would still be love if he never loved you. Okay, what, let me just take a side note here, okay? How many times have you heard, I believe in a God of love, and if God is a God of love, he wouldn't send X and X, so-and-so to hell? How many times have you heard that before? A lot, right? But what did you just say? Would God still be love if he didn't love this person? Yes. Would God still be love if he condemned that person? Yes. So what happens to the objection, God wouldn't be love if he condemned that person? Objection doesn't work anymore. Because you, you, you see what you did there? You've actually shown that the love of God is not primarily something ad extra. It is something ad intra. It is something contained in who he is, even without creation. So you can no longer threaten God as if God's love is compromised when he chooses to, to, to judge somebody. You see, that's one implication of this, okay? Now, let's think about this some more, okay? When God says to you, um, go be my hands and feet, is God still powerful even if you disobey him? Yes. So, what if a sermon says to you, God needs you or else his kingdom will not flourish? Bell should start to sound off, right? Because, because that's implying that God is powerless ad extra, right? You see what I mean? Now, now you, start, you start to get theological instincts, you see what I mean, about who God is and God's doctrine, right? So you got it's so key to make these distinctions. Let me just, one more. God changes his mind. First Samuel 15, 11, God changed his mind and repented that he put Saul as king. Ad intra or ad extra? Does God change his mind in his being or does God change his mind according to his works? In accommodation. Jason. Oh yeah. So when you, when you see in scripture, uh, God regrets something. God changed his mind. God weeps about something. Um, God regretted. And scripture says that in multiple occasions. Not a lot, but multiple occasions. Is that ad intra or ad extra? You'd have to say ad extra, right? But, but notice, the, just, just by the very fact that you have a category in your head, intra or extra, 
you're, you're, you're going to be very slow to say something like, God changes his mind. But without the categories, you're just like, yeah, God changes his mind. But now suddenly you have the instinct to say, intro or extra, you see? But that's, that's a forgotten distinction that we got to retrieve. You see what I mean? So that it's, not, it's no longer just a simple question. Does God change his mind or not? You got, you got to say, in his inner life, God never changes. But in his external life, God can accommodate and takes on human form and he changes his mind. Okay, so, so there are a lot, of, a lot of things that you got, got a lot of moves you got to make because if you don't make these distinctions, you end up with a very confused theology. Okay? So let me, let me, let me push on. Um, so so the, the whole question that perplexes the doctrine of God, then I would say um, makes problems in the doctrine of God, is stated in, in Augustine. What does Augustine say in the beginning of the book of the Trinity? Look, look, look what he says there. So then it is difficult to contemplate and have full knowledge of God's substance, God's being, which without any change in itself makes things that change, creation, right? And without any passage time in itself creates things that exist in time. Notice he's always making a distinction between in itself or ad intra and then things in time, ad extra. Like Augustine is always making that distinction. So this, this makes our, our talk about God very difficult, right? Because we're necessarily finite creatures and we necessarily have to make distinctions. We necessarily have to say God did this in the past. God did not do this in the past. Here's, here's a conundrum that I hope you feel in light of this, okay? If God's really is unchangeable. That means he has never changed his attitude towards you. That means if you are now a Christian, God has always loved you. God has never not loved you. Because you were always in his mind. He never began to love you, right? Unchangeably loving you, unconditionally. What do we do with the fact that you were prior to being a Christian, the Bible says, under the wrath of God? If God unchangeably loved you from the ver- before the foundation of the world, what do you do with the fact that in history you were at one point under the wrath of God because you were not a Christian yet? Now at this point, if you collapse these two things, you're going you're gonna to do one or two things. You're going to either say God is, not change- God is not unchangeable, so he really did change. At one point he said, I'm angry at you. At another point he said, after you converted, I am pleased with you. So God changes. That's one temptation, okay? The other temptation is to say, you were never part of the wrath of God in the first place because God is unchangeable. Even before you were a Christian, you were always loved by God. What do you do? Do you feel the paradox? Do you feel the tension? If God never changes and he's always predestined you to be a Christian, that means he's always loved you in eternity past, right? There's either the temptation to say, God has always loved you and so you were never under the wrath of God, or to say, no, we got to change God's unchangeability and say that you were once under the wrath of God and then now you are not under the wrath of God. So God changed his mind. You, you see the tension there? But here, here's what I hope to inculcate in a lot of us 
and, and so the condition a lot of us to think this way, okay? You need to start thinking in terms of the two levels, the creator-creature distinction. Start to think in that way, and then you will begin to instinctively desire and look at paradox and see that as a good thing. You're going to want to say God is unchangeable, but ad extra, there was a real movement from wrath to grace. There's a real change in wrath to grace. You're going to start to think about paradoxes, and you're going to start to see that as a good thing. You're going you're gonna to start to look at biblical texts that say God repents, and you're going to say ad extra, not ad intra. You're going st- to start to say both things have to be held together and in tension, okay? This is going to be a theology. This is not something that I could tell you think paradoxically. No, I can't just tell you that, right? You gotta, this has got to be an instinct that you've got you to nurture in yourself, okay? Because this is not the first conundrum we're going to see. We're going to see next week that God is fully one and fully three. Every heresy in the history of the church, every heresy in the history of the church boils down to one instinct. Make God intelligible to you. Make God make sense to you. So, either with respect to the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three gods, not really one. Makes sense. So what does the oneness of God mean? Well, they just cooperate. Like, you know, Surya is from the Sunarto family. It's one singular family, but multiple members, right? They, they're cooperative, so we call them one. That's a real heresy. That's tritheism, right? You, God is not a social concept. There is no social Trinitarianism. There is no three members of God, and then they just work together in cooperation. Social Trinity is wrong. And at the same time, you're going to be tempted to say, well, because God is one, right, then the threeness of God isn't really three. You're going to be tempted to say, God is Father at some points, Son at other points, and then Spirit at other points. Like you are, like I said before, Father and a Son, and also a businessman. Like these are just three different modes of who you are. You notice, that also makes sense. You don't have to flex like mentally, right, to get that. That immediately just kind of makes sense to you. So in the same way with God's unchangeability and God's changes, quote-unquote, at extra in time, there's going to be real paradox, there's real tension. That's why Augustine on the book of the Trinity says it is difficult to contemplate this. It is difficult to contemplate this. God, theology is not an easy science, if I could put it that way. Theology requires rules of speech and rules of grammar, rules of reading, I would argue, so that you can instinctively read the Bible. And, and you know, a four-year-old will come to, one day come up to you and say, if Jesus is God, then who is he praying to in the garden? How do you answer that? I've heard, I've heard a Christian, by the way, respond to that and say, well, yeah, Jesus is the Son of God. He's not God. So he's praying to the Father. Okay. 
Why is that wrong? Because you, you, you can't say Jesus is not God, right? So, so Jesus is fully God, but if he's fully God, is he praying to himself? Okay, good. You're all, you're all wondering. I'm not going to answer it. So you, you, you can take that on the way home and start to think about it and then start to see why theologians require years of training to, to really think about these things well, okay? Let me just take another thing. Does, does Romans 8, the Spirit of God uh, prays with words that you can understand because he knows what you need to pray for. I'm, I'm paraphrasing Romans 8. So the Spirit of God prays with you and in you. Uh, but if the Spirit is God, why would God pray to himself for you? So what does it mean that the Spirit prays in you and for you? It's the same kind of question. Here's one wrong answer. I'll just say the wrong answer. I'm not going to answer the whole thing because it's going to come clearer hopefully by next week. One wrong answer is to say the Spirit has his own language and then gives you that language and that's speaking in tongues. Don't go there. That's not, that's not the proper response. But notice there are rules of speech that you've got to go with. Okay? Or, or how about this? If, if God the Father and God the Son are equally and fully one, what does God the Son say in particular passages in the Gospel of John I don't do anything on my own authority. I only do what the Father tells me. What do you do about that? Jehovah Witnesses love that passage, by the way, right? Because they're going to say, see, not the same authority. The Son of God is distinct from the Father, really, really distinct. The Son of God is less authoritative than the Father, really, really less. What do you do as Christians? But by the way, that answer makes sense, right? You can immediately say, well, the Father and the Son are distinct. Of course, the Son is less equal than the Father in authority. There's no flexing. There's no difficulty there. Here's what I want us to inculcate throughout the rest of the course, okay? I want us to be very, very patient with paradox. And in fact, when you encounter a paradox in Scripture, not to do away with it because the tendency of every heresy is to do away with the paradox, but instead to embrace it. If God is sovereign, why should you pray? If God is in control, why are we responsible? Temptation to say God is not really sovereign, it's really up to you, or God is sovereign so you're just a robot. Neither. You don't want to go either way, right? So much of this course in the next few weeks is just going to say embrace paradox and mystery. I can't go through the biblical texts Here's where I'm going to go next week and then the last week, okay? Next week, we're going to discuss God's simplicity. This is, this is in your notes as well. Which is the doctrine that God is without parts and God doesn't change. God is fully, completely one. All that is in God is God. So God is one. We're also going to talk about the Trinity. In what way then... If God is fully and completely one, there are no parts in him. He's not a composite being. He, there's no composition in God. In what way then is he Trinitarian? 
So we're going to talk about the Trinity. First hour, simplicity. Second hour, Trinity. That's what we're going to discuss. And then third, this is going to be the last Sunday, the last Saturday. We're going to talk about the knowledge of God. God's knowledge. This is just a preview of everything that's going to come, okay? God's knowledge, which is, by the way, um, according, again, we're, we're retrieving the language of the, of the ancient church and the language of the reformers. God's knowledge is always divided into two, natural or necessary knowledge. We're going to discuss what that means. And then the free knowledge of God. And then, fourthly, we're going to talk about Jacob Arminius. How many of you guys have heard of Jacob Arminius? Like a few of you. Um, let me just give a pitch for that, okay? Here, here, here's, here's the common debate between that, that we hear often today, okay? Calvinism, Arminianism. Have you heard about that? Okay. So some of you know, some of you yes, okay. Here's the common popular understanding of that debate. Calvinism says God has predestined um, who would be saved and who would not be saved from before the foundation of the world. God is so in control, he's so sovereign over everything, nothing happens by chance. Calvinism. Man is so depraved that if God did not choose him, he would never choose God. Calvinism. That sounds like, you know, okay, that's, that's, that's one view. On the other side, popularly speaking, there's Arminianism. Arminianism would say, God hasn't predestined anything. You have free will. God just waits upon you, and then he would respond according to what you choose. And it really depends ultimately upon you whether or not you'd be saved. God might know the future, but, you know, he learns along the way and he responds accordingly. Does that sound familiar? Yes? Okay. Calvinism or Arminianism? Okay. Um, now, what I want to do in this last session is defend Arminius. I want to I argue that Arminius was way more Calvinistic than more, most of today's Arminians. And if Arminius was to sit across of Joyce Mayer, he would be very disappointed. Or, or take your common Arminian uh, guy today, uh, name, name whoever, who believes you have free will, God loves everybody equally, God leaves it up to you whether or not you'll obey him, um, you know, you're not really totally depraved, like, Arminius would, would, would be like, I'm with John Calvin, which is going to be interesting. So I hope that's a pitch for you. If that, that's not, okay, I get it, and I'm a nerd. So that might be interesting to you. That, that might not be interesting to you. But I hope that would be interesting to you. But I've been reading up more on Arminius lately, and it's surprising to me that he believes, uh, uh, most Arminians today, let me just say one more thing. Most Arminians today believe God changes his mind, right? God is changeable because you have free will. He responds to you according to your free will, right? Get this, guys. Arminius believes that God is unchangeable, independent, utterly sovereign. Nothing you do affects his inner life. Arminius believed all of those things. How does that work? So where did popular Arminianism come from? And is there a connection between modern-day Arminianism and Jacob Arminius' actual theology from the 16th century? 17th century, sorry. 
Okay, that's where we're going to go in the last session. God's knowledge and our minis, and we're going to discuss about that. All right? Thank you guys for being patient with me through the first cohort week and for coming. I hope to see you all next week. Okay, let me, let me close us in prayer because that's the, the pious thing to do. Father, we've discussed a lot about retrieval, about living in a post-apocalyptic age where most of our theology and most of our history had been forgotten, that we need to scavenge, that we need to retrieve um, the things that have been forgotten and not be persuaded by the winds of doctrine that seem new or novel, but really stand on the firm root of Scripture and how the best of the church has read Scripture. So, Father, help us be patient. Help us, Lord God, think wisely through the difficult doctrine of God about how a changeless God relates to a changing world. So, Father, be with us in these coming weeks. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.